is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. As you all know, I've spent the last two episodes covering the cases featured in the 30-year-old Runaway Train music video by Soul Asylum. Today, I'll be covering the final two cases, the first and probably most infamous, Polly Class. The second case will cover the story of the little boy, Tommy Gibson, whose two-year-old face was featured at the end of each version of the video. The most famous name to be featured in the videos was Polly Class. Her face was added to the rotation after she was kidnapped from her home in Petaluma, California on October 1st, 1993, just five months after the first video aired. As Polly's is not only an extensive case but has been extensively covered, I will be giving a bit of a summary as opposed to sharing all of the information available. At the time, Polly was in middle school and was as playful, goofy, and outgoing as any 12-year-old. She was just starting to come into her own and learn who she wanted to be. Her parents were divorced, so she spent most of her time with her mother. She did have time with her dad from time to time, and they spoke every night on the phone. The couple had split a decade earlier. On October 1st, 1993, Polly invited friends Kate and Jillian over for a slumber party. The three young girls had an evening of fun and laughter. Her mother had gone to her room, and the girls were still awake in Polly's. Leaving the room to grab a snack around 10.30 p.m., Polly was shocked to see a large man standing in front of her door when she opened it. Holding a knife he had taken from the kitchen, the man pushed Polly back into the room. The three girls were terrified as he threatened them with the knife. Polly was taken out of the house by the man. The girls screamed shortly after he left, and by 11, the police were called. That's terrifying. Yeah. I can't imagine a scarier thing. Like that is the type of scenario that you think of because of the mm-hmm. horror movies you've seen throughout your life. Like, ooh. yeah, or when you're a kid and you're like, oh, I'm awake and everyone else is in bed. Yeah. Like, what if there's someone in the hallway? You yeah. see a pile of clothes and you think it's a person, mm-hmm. but this time it's really a person. Like, oh, terrifying. Yeah. For the small, presumably safe community, it was hard to believe the story of a mystery man kidnapping a young girl. Once police arrived, the remaining girls, Kate and Jillian, reported the kidnapper had been a white man in his 30s and he had a beard. They described the long knife and the handle. Using that knife as a threat, he had forced all three to put pillowcases over their heads and he bound their wrists with ripped bedding. The man then told the girls to lie silently and not move until they counted to a thousand. Once they did, they took the pillowcases off their head and saw that Polly was gone. That was when they screamed for help. It was hard for anyone to imagine, let alone believe, that a house full of people couldn't have heard a window or a door or a creak telling them that someone was in the house. With how scared the girls were, the police thankfully took their story seriously and called the FBI while simultaneously putting out an APB bolo for Polly. Interviewing neighbors, one claimed to have witnessed a man walking up the driveway and into the back door of Polly's house at just about 1030. The neighbor didn't call anything in because it seemed that the man was very comfortable in the setting. He wasn't peering into windows or even testing doors. He just walked right in like he owned the place. 
This had police wondering if Polly's father, Mark, had been that man. Interfamily kidnappings are the most common kind. He and Polly had spoken earlier that afternoon, and their last words to each other were, I love you. After polygraphs, interviews, alibis, and questioning, both parents were cleared. Evidence was collected from the house, which basically consisted of the torn cloth and electrical cord bindings that had been used. It wasn't until many hours later that a palm print that didn't match anyone who had been in the home was found on Polly's bed frame. Oh, that's interesting because he came into the doorway mm-hmm. and I would have presumed taken her right there and not come into the room. So does that mean he had been there before or did he maybe come in no, to he, tie them up? Yeah. So he went in basically. Oh, so he went she fully op- into the room. Yeah. So when she opened the door and he was standing there, he then came into the room, pushing her back in and then closed the door behind him. And then that's when he put the pillowcases or made them put the pillowcases on. And then he ripped up a bed sheet. So mm. it's my understanding that leaning on the bed was to get the sheet was when he placed his hand on it. And then that left the palm print. And then he tore up the bed sheet and at some point some electrical cord. And then that's how he bound their wrists. Gotcha. While the palm print was good to have should the case go to court, only fingerprints are in databases, so it wasn't going to be of any use until they could test it against samples provided by suspects. Checking in with Kate and Jillian, police asked for further details about the suspect so they could create a composite sketch. Together, the girls were able to create an image of a bearded man with long, messy hair and a bandana on his forehead. The police set up a task force to specifically focus on Polly's case, and it didn't take long for her story to garner national attention. Especially helpful was the sketch provided by the girls. Polly's story was uncovered by Oprah and People magazine. Her parents, standing strong together, appeared on the news pleading for help or answers and the safe return of their beloved daughter. Returning to her hometown to help was, of all people, Winona Ryder, queen of the 90s and ex to Dave Perner, the lead singer of Soul Asylum. Winona had grown up in Petaluma and went back to bring attention to Polly's case. She also brought money, offering $200,000 of her own money as a reward for Polly's safe return. She also had the film Little Women, which came out in December of 1994, dedicated to Polly as Little Women was her favorite book. That's nice. I didn't realize that. Yeah, she was like super involved. Because of the exposure, thanks in no small part to Winona's presence, thousands of calls offering tips started to come in. Police knew their best chance of finding Polly would occur in the first couple of days. A week into her disappearance, there was a call to Mark Class's home. Mark was gone at the time, but his brother-in-law was staying with him to keep guard at the home as the publicity and still remaining skepticism by some who thought he was to blame had all kinds of people coming by the home. When Polly's uncle answered the phone, a little girl on the other end said that she was Polly and that she was in a hotel. She went on to say she couldn't talk long but would call back. And you'll recall, this was back in the early 90s. Back then, we didn't have caller ID or star 69 or anything like that yet. Initially, people put a trace on Polly's mother's phone as that had been her main residence. They neglected to do so on Mark's, so they had no way of knowing if that caller had in fact been Polly, and if it had been, where she was located. It almost would have been better if he were a suspect so that they would have done that. Yeah, exactly. Like, they would have been looking that much closer. That's a really good point. Learning from their mistake, the police put a tracker on Mark's phone right away. Two days later, another call. 
It sounded like the same young girl from before. And again, she said she couldn't stay on the phone long, but she was in a hotel and the guy was coming back. Tracing the number, a SWAT team stormed into a residential home not far away. Once they realized they weren't raiding a hotel, but there was a teenage girl who lived in the home, they put the pieces together. The girl admitted her friends had dared her to call Mark's number and to pretend to be Polly. That is so effed up. Yeah. So insensitive. And I realize teens can do dumb things, but like that is truly heartless. Yeah. So hopefully she learned a lesson from that. And maybe the SWAT team scared her out of doing anything like that ever again. I wouldn't stop until she pooped her pants. (laughs) And that's why Emily should be in charge of SWAT team. Thank you. (laughs) To help keep Polly's story in the news and public's eye, volunteer centers were set up. In them, calls would be made, signs would be printed, posters would be hung. Feeling unable to do anything else, Mark found himself spending a lot of time at those centers. Two weeks had passed. The task force was still working around the clock, but they were getting nowhere. Three weeks in, there was another call, this time to a tip line. A man was calling to say he not only had Polly, but he was holding her for ransom. The SWAT team was sent out again, making their way into an apartment. Once again, it was a false claim. This man was just hoping to make money off the family, even though he had nothing to do with the taking of Polly. What is wrong with people? I don't know. These are like the sickest people. That's like in the Jacob Wetterling case that you just covered. The people were calling and telling these made up tips and Mm -hmm. just like hurting the family every single time yeah. they would have hope. The oh. lowest the lowest form of lowest. human life. Yes. It's and just I, like, yeah. And scum. I don't know what kind of consequence there is, like if it's just filing a false report or Fuck, if they don't even, if they don't maybe. even bother, like maybe they don't even bother charging, but like it should be a huge, it should be like 10 years or something. And a fee. Like they should have yeah. to pay. Yeah, some sort of Because of all the work that goes mm-hmm. into following leads. Oh, oh yeah. Sending God. out a SWAT team, sending people out that Wasting could have been. Wasting resources. Yeah. yeah. I think it's changed because now they have that. What do they call it when you call in a SWAT team to someone? I think it's oh, like SWATing. swatting. Yeah. 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 Like there is major punishment for that now. Yeah. Which is great, but. Yeah, cases like that, or, you know, we've had some in the past where people send letters all the time, or... It's like the people that, the kids that, like, throw, like, a dummy oh, over yeah. the, you know, good, the good son. <laughs> they throw, yes. like, a dummy God. over onto the highway. That just yeah. happened. Uh, mm-hmm. Some kids were charged with murder uh, for throwing rocks over an overpass because it killed Oh, someone. yeah, and then I think one of the them, time. one of the kids saved something from that crash, I think. Oh, that's how they... That's yeah. freaking creepy. Yeah. That's yes. even creepier. Yeah. That's a little serial killer in the making. No kidding. And if that were my kid, I don't even know what I would do. (laughs) I do not know what I would do. Send them off. Because I would know, like, there's something wrong Mm -hmm. with you. I mean, they need therapy. They need a psychiatrist. They're probably a boarding school. Yeah. Yikes. Not long after that incident, another call came in. This time, it was from a nearby police department calling the police headquarters in Petaluma. They had just arrested a man who had broken into the home of a woman and her 12-year-old daughter. Once arrested, they found the man was in possession of a knife and a rape kit. Hoping they had caught the serial offender, everything from hair to DNA was tested. Testing it against what they had recovered from Polly's home, none of the physical evidence matched, and he was cleared of having any relation to the case. Just another scumbag on the street. Rape kits. Freak me out. So sick. So sick. Another week, another tip. This time it was a call from an FBI informant. 
He claimed that Mark had a cabin in Northern California's Mendocino County, where Polly was being held by drug dealers who were seeking revenge against Mark. This call then shifted the focus of the investigation back to her already cleared father. Setting up a dangerous search operation as the cabin was located in the Emerald Triangle of Northern California, a dangerous place home to many pot growers and not-so-cordial drug-related gangs, another team was compiled. This time, they were prepped to search the woods. Twenty minutes after the search began, the informant's connection reported to police that he had recanted his story and admitted to making it all up. Shocking. Yeah. I don't know how much you know about the Emerald Triangle. I've watched a couple documentaries about murders there and just kind of stuff there. And it's like, that's the Wild West. That is a scary place to send people. (laughs) SWAT team or not, that's scary. Sasquatch on Hulu, I think it was. Oh, yeah, that's one of them. Mm -hmm. Was, uh, yeah, very scary. Yeah. November 28th led to an actual lead. A woman in Sonoma County, 25 miles away, was hiking through her large property after having loggers fell some trees when she came across something strange. It looked at first to be just a pile of random fabrics. She called it in, and detectives, including the first one on the scene to the initial call to Polly's house, went to check it out. Picking up a white piece of cloth, detectives noticed it was not only tied like a ligature, but it appeared to be the exact same material that had been used to tie up Kate and Jillian. This discovery led to one of the largest searches in California history, with hundreds of searchers from over a dozen agencies. Speaking to Nina Jaffe, the woman who found the fabric, she said that there had been another incident on her property back on October 2nd around midnight. Nina's babysitter was leaving to go home, and when she got to the bottom of their road-like driveway, she saw what she described as a very scary man. He was standing within Nina's gate, outside his vehicle, smoking a cigarette, and wearing a bandana. The babysitter was terrified of the man, so she stopped at a gas station to call Nina. She warned her of his presence and suggested that she and the kids leave the house. Nina did that and called the police to report the concern. The police responded quickly. Finding the man at the end of the driveway, his car next to a field, they questioned him. They couldn't arrest him, but they knew his behavior was odd, if not alarming. Asking him why he was there, the man claimed that he had been driving around sightseeing at midnight before he got lost. I see my best sights at midnight. Oh, so many sights to see. Driving to find a main road, his truck then went off the shoulder, getting stuck in a slight ditch. This was only an hour and a half after Polly had been taken from her home. The man wasn't charged, but as his truck was towed out of the ditch, police told him to leave the area and never return. They then escorted him a mile and a half back to the main road. Thankfully, the police who spoke with him made a report that stated the driver was sweaty, breathing heavily, and had twigs in his hair. Ew, I'm thinking the worst here. Mm. After getting the call from the other department, detectives working Polly's case were able to track down that report and read the name they had been looking for, Richard Allen Davis. Pulling up the photo of Richard Allen Davis, police could not believe how much he looked like the sketch the girls had dictated. Starting at just 12 years old, Richard Allen Davis was having issues with the law. By the time he was 40, he had spent more of his life behind bars than as a free man. He had been hit with a variety of charges, indecent exposure, burglary, forgery, theft, drunken public, resisting arrest, trespassing, car theft, driving while intoxicated, sexual assault, drug possession, and even two kidnapping charges. Oh, that's yikes. 
Richard was living 75 miles north of Petaluma at the time at his sister's house. Detectives went to the home, but he wasn't there, nor was Polly. Setting up roadblocks, police quickly arrested him for a parole violation. This arrest allowed them to process him. And on December 3rd, the palm print recovered from the bed was confirmed as a match to Richard Allen Davis. That's so sad. It's like part of you wants to be like, no. Yeah, someone has her somewhere. and Someone who really does want a ransom. Yeah. As wonderful as it was to have the boogeyman off the street, they still didn't know where Polly was or if she was even alive. Interviewing Richard, he would scoff at the officer's accusations, or at least he did at first. He denied having any knowledge about Polly. Then detectives told him they not only had physical proof of his involvement, but they would be pushing for the death penalty in court if he didn't cooperate. With that information, his memory suddenly returned. After five hours of questioning, Richard finally confessed to killing Polly. He then said he would be willing to take them to her body. So they drove an hour north and went to an open field in a forested area. Pointing out a specific tree, he claimed Polly was laying to the right of it. Finding a piece of plywood that had been used to cover her, the detective lifted it and discovered a small body in the ground. Two calls were made, one to the Polly class task force, and one to her family. Even though an official identification would have to wait and she wasn't 100% identifiable in the moment, the officers knew it was her. To this day, that area is treated as a sacred space. What was the time frame from Polly being taken to her body being found? Just shy of two months. It Ah, was about six or seven weeks. Since Richard never gave details, the prosecution would later say that Richard had been stalking the neighborhood for weeks, watching the houses and searching for prey. Choosing Polly, he then watched her house specifically. Spending time looking into the windows, Richard became familiar with the layout of the house, hence the confidence the neighbor noted as he entered the home. After taking Polly and driving to Nina's property, Richard had most likely already killed Polly via strangulation. It was also accused there had been an attempted sexual assault. I don't know if there was any proof of that or if it was just an assumption that had been made based on who Richard was, but that he denied. So perhaps the strangulation and attempted assault happened on Nina's property, which left behind Polly's bindings. He then hid her body in a bush. Right after doing so was when the police arrived to assist him with his stuck vehicle. After he was escorted to the main road, he waited and waited before he returned to retrieve her body. Moving her to another location, he chose one most beneficial to his needs. Since he was required to go north to Ukiah weekly to check in with his parole officer, he could keep an eye on the grave he had given her off Highway 101. That route would be seen as being necessary to get to his check-ins, so it wouldn't be an unusual space for him to pass through. That's sick. He could see it, like, from the highway he could see it? I think he could see the the area. He could see the tree. So he ended up putting her next to a tree. So what it sounded like was basically off the main highway, but not so far that he couldn't see it. So I think I I think that was part of it, too, was to kind of monitor. Yeah. Is anyone checking that out? Are people probably more creepy reasons? Very creepy for sure. Yeah. But but also pretty savvy if if that was really part of his thought process that he could kind of watch it. Mm -hmm. That's that's. That's pretty savvy for it. It's also very serial killer-like. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That that continued control even Mm -hmm. after. Yeah. And like reliving it. Mm -hmm. And doing something in secret and and no one knows. Like you're just driving down a highway, but no one else knows. Oh, yeah. As you're driving to your PO. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. 
On August 5th, 1996, a jury found Richard Allen Davis guilty of murder in the first degree with special circumstances, including burglary, robbery, kidnapping, and for attempting a lewd act upon a child under the age of 14. Making a statement to the court as he was sentenced to death, Richard said, quote, I would also like to state for the record that the main reason I know that I did not attempt any lewd act that night was because of a statement the young girl made to me while walking her up the embankment. Just don't do me like dad. (gasps) With that comment, Mark lunged for Richard, cursing at the man who had just accused him of sexually abusing the daughter that he was missing so much. That's some bullshit. Isn't that disgusting? (sighs) And to say, and even just how he said it, I know I did not attempt any lewd act that night. The reason I know that. Like what? What kid even talks like that? Oh yeah. It's so sick. It's like, that just shows how deplorable this guy is. That even though he's being sentenced to death, he still wants to, like, twist that knife in their side. It's so sick. With reminders from the court that no evidence of such behavior had ever been uncovered, the judge thanked Richard for making what is usually a difficult decision much easier. (laughs) Flipping two birds to the courtroom, Richard was taken to San Quentin, where he still waits on death row. Richard has not been put to death yet, but he almost met the Reaper in 2006 when he was found unconscious in his jail cell overdosing on opiates. It was not released if that incident had been an accidental overdose or an actual attempt to take his own life. Richard's lengthy criminal history and the disturbing nature of his crimes helped California pass their three strikes law. This means a defendant who has had two prior convictions for violent or serious felonies will be given a mandatory minimum sentence of 25 years to life. For Mark, the passion he had for finding Polly has spread to other cases with the establishing of the Polly Class Foundation. The PKF works to help families of missing children, aids in finding the children, and lobbying for changing laws to better protect children. You can help by making a donation to polyclass.org, and that's P-O-L-L-Y-K-L-A-A-S.org. Do you guys remember this case, especially you, Josh, in California? I do. Yeah. When you were talking, I looked up the photo of both of them and it was like chilled me to remember that stuff. Yeah, Yeah, I definitely remember it, but I I didn't remember the details. Yeah. I know I've heard it. I just retained them. I I remember it because, like you said, that's the ultimate nightmare. And it's so infrequent. I think when you're a Mm -hmm. kid, even if you only hear about it once or twice, it's it feels like, oh, my God, that could happen any second to anyone all the time. And hers especially. um, We were only a couple years apart in age. And I was just like, wait, what? Somebody can just come in here. Like the ultimate nightmare, like you Mm -hmm. said, just. That's the kind of stuff when you're home alone, you think about like, I heard a noise. Oh, it's probably somebody trying to get in. Yeah. You know, but let alone when you're having a slumber party Mm. like that, that false sense of security of like, oh, I've got my friends with me. So we're fine. Exactly. But yeah. uh, What year was that? Uh, He well, he was convicted in 96. She was taken in October on October 1st of 93. So it took a few years to, as always, get him through the system and everything. And uh, and I'm so torn, too, because mandatory sentences are great on one hand for somebody like that, because two kidnapping attempts, you know, his third thing, he would have been off the street already. 
but then it's also like uh, not every know. case not gets every into case that box. Exactly. or some people were innocent and still exactly got or, charged yeah um i know what you mean yeah and or how but you they know. are made for people like this to me it doesn't really seem like it would be a deterrent more than like a or kind of a deterrent but also people who have those two strikes might have more of a fuck it attitude about life yeah mm-hmm. or they don't see prison as such a bad thing yeah just, especially if they've been in they've been incarcerated multiple times that's just life yeah it's not like my life's being waylaid by this. It's mm-hmm. just I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. It's just part of how they live. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it could have someone be like, oh, I have two strikes now. Well, maybe I'll go out with a blaze. Blaze like, of glory. Yeah. And he he had those at the time. Did he have those two strikes at the time that that, that, he, that he. Well, he had several strikes, but that wasn't the law yet. It uh, wasn't until after oh, he right. was convicted. Um. So, yeah. So if that had been in place, he would have been. I, I don't know the year or long anything, before. but long before yeah. he would have been uh, behind bars. So it's unfortunate and, uh, you know, so sad. Again, though, it's one of those where because her dad was so involved and and her case got so much coverage that he's really been able to help a lot of families. Yeah, a lot of kids are safer because of him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like um, uh, Adam Walsh. It's the best scenario that can come out of yeah, exactly. something horrible like exactly. that. Exactly. So it's it's not a total loss, but um, just so sad. And she was so young. And yeah, I really remember that case. It's really surprising it so to hear that he's still alive. I know. I'm really shocked by that. Yeah, he's not young. Yeah, and he wasn't he's been young in prison at the time, a lot. And he, yeah, he was a. And using drugs. Yeah. Even in prison. So. Evil, though, is the ultimate uh, preservative, I feel. Yeah. We've come to the final case in the Runaway Train series. Thomas Dean Gibson was only two years old when he disappeared in 1991. In all three U.S. versions of Runaway Train, the adorable picture of the little boy with chubby cheeks, a button nose, and a big smile was the last picture shown. Just an hour north of Medford, Oregon, is Glendale, which is a tiny town. In the 90s, the 0.4-square-mile city had a population of about 700 people, Even now, it only hovers around 900. Fun fact about the area, in the 1880s, it was home to the first Jewish communitarian or community-focused community in America. Being such a tiny community, it made what happened in March 1991 all the more shocking. Thomas Gibson, or Tommy, was just two years and eight months old on March 18th when he was taking advantage of a non-rainy early spring day by playing in his front yard. It was around 11.30 a.m. when his father, Larry Gibson, came outside and told Tommy to stay in the yard to wait for his sister Karen to join him. She was just four at the time, and she was busy in her room trying to find her shoes. Larry Gibson, who happened to be a deputy sheriff for Douglas County, felt so safe in his small town that he left his two-year-old outside to wait for his four-year-old sister while he went on a two-mile jog. Oh... That's not a great decision to make. Not so much. But I get it. No, I don't get that. (laughs) I don't get that at all. Before he could get too far away from the home, Larry unholstered the forty-five service weapon he had on his shoulder, aimed, and fired. He was shooting at one of the many annoying stray cats that had begun to take over the area. Oh, my God. The gunfire appeared to have only scared the cat away, so he picked up the used shell and got back to his jog. Returning from the jog about 45 minutes later, he found the cat he had hit. 
It had died after running away from the location where the shooting took place. Getting to his house, Larry's wife, Judith, was concerned about two things. She had heard a gunshot in the area, unaware it was Larry's cat hunting, and she didn't know where Tommy was. Assuming he was safe and with his father, she asked if Larry took Tommy with him. He hadn't. Being an officer of the law, Larry knew even in their tight-knit community, they needed to act fast. Tommy was reported missing right away, and in less than an hour after the report, search teams were being assembled. No area was left unturned. The house was combed through, the yard, the neighborhood, every inch. Even though only a few hundred people lived in the area, hundreds of people from the surrounding communities showed up to volunteer to help find Tommy. For three days and nights, the teams scoured the area, looking for any sign of the two-year-old. Judith, who also went by Judy, couldn't understand what could have happened. She knew Tommy would never have just walked off. He was a Velcro kid, and he did not like to be alone. So even if he had walked away, how far could his little feet have taken him? Investigators and detectives were focused on the search, but they also knew to keep an eye on everyone surrounding the case. So they were sure to make note of Larry's behavior at the onset of the search, behavior that caused them concern. Mm. As the search got started, Larry didn't join the group right away. What he did was he went inside his house, he took a shower, and he put on his sheriff's uniform. He wouldn't be wasting his time searching the house or surrounding areas. He felt certain this was a crime most foul, so he would be taking his patrol car to rest stops in the area to look for those who had most likely taken his son. When the sunny skies filled with clouds that threatened snow, Larry didn't start to panic that his son would be in hypothermic temperatures all night. Instead, he told everyone to call off the search. Detectives had to decide if that behavior was the same as a suspicious person or was just that of a frantic and grieving father. Against Larry's request, the searches continued. Nothing was found that night or the next day, and in a flash, weeks had gone by without the slightest clue as to what could have happened to Tommy. His parents were interviewed extensively, of course. Judy told detectives that Larry had left the home at some point during the day to go a few miles to Glendale to check on his personal vehicle that was at a shop. Judy also recalled hearing a car idling near their home the morning of the disappearance. Larry told detectives he had been at home all day, with the exception of his jog. Detectives had casually looked around his patrol car for evidence— they didn't find anything physical, but they did note that there were seven miles on the odometer that were unaccounted for. Mm. When asked about them, Larry said that they were due to his rest area excursions as part of his search. He then took and passed a polygraph test. So did Judith. Even though they both passed, there were signs in the test that they were either withholding information or altering their answers. Approached with the conflicting stories of Larry's whereabouts that day, Judy said the police had coerced her into telling the story of Larry's car. A search warrant was executed a few weeks later, but nothing was found in Larry's patrol car. Unfortunately, no one had really looked that closely on the day of Tommy's disappearance, and by then he had had plenty of time to clean it up if he had needed to. The search parties were much appreciated by the family, but investigators soon realized that their stomping through the area had destroyed any chance of finding evidence, if any had existed. Digging deeper into everyone's alibis, investigators confirmed Larry had in fact gone for a jog. There was one problem, though. He had only jogged one mile, not two, leaving about 20 minutes of his day unaccounted for. Discovering the dead cat's body, police put together a theory— the cat had been shot through the lungs and heart. 
They believed that Larry had been so focused on aiming at the cat that perhaps he hadn't seen his son playing behind it. The bullet could have simply gone through the cat before striking and killing Tommy. Giving the story that he was going for a two-mile jog provided Larry with 20 minutes to clean up the area, put Tommy's body in the trunk of his patrol car, and wait. Calling for help, he could have then driven off with Tommy's body in his car and hid or buried him three or so miles away from the home, hence the seven miles. I would have to say that's a very solid theory and one that crossed my mind as well. There you go. Going back to just a month and a half after Tommy was last seen, his deputy sheriff father was officially the prime suspect in his disappearance. After putting the theory together, his fellow officers approached Larry with their thoughts. They believed he had tried to shoot the cat, accidentally shot his son, and covered it up so he wouldn't get fired. To this, Larry said, quote, It could have happened that way, and it's possible. It's the only thing that makes sense. He also offered another theory. Not that he hadn't killed his son, but that his half-brother, who was staying at their home at the time, must have come outside and found Tommy's body and moved it somewhere without telling anyone. Um, I doubt, doubt that, sir. That's what most people do when they come across uh, oh, shit, a shot my child. Nephew. Yeah, I guess I better hide him. This conversation and the compilation of evidence led to an affidavit. An affidavit is only a legal statement and not official charges, but it showed what direction the investigation was going. The document read in part, This affidavit will show that the only logical and probable way the body of Tommy Gibson could have been removed from the scene by any of the occupants of the residence at the time of the shooting was in the trunk of the patrol vehicle of Larry Gibson or after Gibson reported the child missing or to have been carried from the scene by Larry Gibson during the time Larry Gibson purports to have been jogging for 44 to 45 minutes. The likelihood of Tommy Gibson being alive and meeting any fate other than death at the hands of Larry Gibson is extremely small. After filing the statement, officers were given a warrant to search the Gibson home. Executing the search warrant, officers found multiple guns, telephone records, a bloody deer bag, and a spent 45 caliber shell, which had been in a dresser tucked under some children's underwear. What? It wasn't clear if they had been Tommy's or where the shell came from. That makes me think he picked it up from shooting the cat and kept it for some reason. I don't know. I I can't I can't even fathom why I get hiding it, but why hide it in your home? Like yeah. that's creepy. That gives me creepy vibes. Yeah. Compiling reports from witnesses and Larry, contradictions started to appear. Larry had told one officer early on that he hadn't been able to find the shell after shooting the cat, but he told another one he had picked it up. A month and a half after the affidavit, three months into Tommy's disappearance, his young sister's memories were returning. Speaking to her counselor and parents, she now, almost five, claimed to have seen a vehicle pull up in front of the house. A man and a woman got out of the car and spoke to Tommy before grabbing him. They then got back into the car and drove away. Larry and the counselor then gave this story to detectives who weren't buying it as Karen, the sister, never mentioned anything of the like when they spoke to her at the start of the investigation. It was decided by her parents that Karen had simply been too scared and shocked to have come forward any sooner with this information. Sounds like a false memory to me. Mm. Karen had been affected greatly by losing Tommy. They had been best friends. They even shared a bedroom, a bedroom that Karen would no longer go into as the grief was too powerful. Since detectives didn't have proof this reported abduction hadn't taken place, they followed up on it. 
The perpetrators were described as a white woman with long blonde hair. She was with a white man with dark hair, a beard, and messy clothes. They had an older truck that was gold or tan, and the license plate was in the wrong spot, which to me seems like quite a lot of information for a four-year-old to retain Mm -hmm. while watching her brother be abducted, let alone to retell it all those months later. But that's just me. I'm going to have to agree. Adding to the abduction theory was a neighbor who claimed to have witnessed the same people driving away from Tommy's home around that time, just as she was getting home from going to the bank. Like with Karen, detectives weren't sure why this information wasn't shared back in March when the same woman had been interviewed. As odd, upsetting, and maybe possible all of this was, there was still no proof, evidence, or a body. No charges could be brought to anyone. Within a year of Tommy's disappearance, the family, with the new addition of daughter Lisa, who was born in 1992, moved from Oregon to just outside Helena, Montana, to live next door to Judy's mother. Judy eventually went back to school. Larry resigned from the force and became an insurance salesman. Judy and Larry would eventually split, leaving Larry to move in with his grandmother. Police continued their investigation. As they did, everything pointed to Larry, and they felt the odds of Tommy having been abducted at random were very low. Tommy's story was eventually featured on America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries twice. It brought in calls and tips, but nothing that came to be anything of use. His segments have since been removed, as Unsolved Mysteries tends to do with closed cases, so don't spend hours looking for it like I did. Detective Ranger, who is working on the case, said, quote, We've been in contact with agencies all over the country. We do not have blinders on. We will follow up on any leads, but he will remain a suspect until we can clear him. Up until this point, he has not been cleared. Being an officer of the law, Larry understood the suspicion. He said, My research into this tells me that we are not alone. A lot of families spend a lot of their time under suspicion. These cases are so bizarre that the investigators don't know what to do. They don't have any leads. They can investigate me all they want. I don't really care about that. There's never been anything that I've done that I care that they find out. As long as they keep looking for Tommy at the same time, I don't care what they do with me. Larry was becoming inspired by his experience and the emotional isolation he was feeling. Only a couple hundred of the tens of thousands of children in the missing and exploited children's database were victims of stranger abductions. Larry could vent and lean on the shoulders of family and friends, but he felt they could not fully understand what he was feeling. He shared his ambitions of wanting to set up a hotline for families who were going through the same situation. He also wanted every state to create a sexual offender database. In an ironic connection to the runaway train video, Larry said, quote, If CNN, ABC, NBC, and CBS ran photos of missing children throughout the day, maybe more would be found. At a year and a half gone, Judy was still certain, thanks to her maternal instinct, that her son was still alive. She felt that another family had him. Larry hadn't thought that at first, but he eventually came around to the idea. He thought some other community was lucky enough to get to see him every day, that some family was watching him learn how to ride a bike, how to read, all of the things that they were missing out on. After years of investigating Larry and everything surrounding Tommy's disappearance, it was Karen, now almost eight years old, who broke the case. It's unclear if she was being interviewed again or if she had asked her mother to reach out to authorities on her behalf. Either way, she had a new story to tell that would change everything. 
She claimed that on the morning of March 18th, she and Tommy had been in the front yard playing when she witnessed her father grab Tommy's arms and hold them behind his back as he struck him on or across the face approximately four times. This caused Tommy to fall to his back. Before he could get off the ground, if he had even been capable of doing so, Larry picked him up and put him in the back seat of the car. Tommy had been coherent enough to reach his tiny arm up to the open back window, and he waved to his sister Karen as they drove away. Approximately 20 minutes later, based on Larry's alibi, he returned in the patrol car. He parked the car where it had been, and, using a branch, he swept the ground to wipe away the tire marks, showing that he had taken the car anywhere. Tommy had not returned with his father. After clearing up the evidence, Larry then went on his one-mile jog. When detectives asked Karen why she had told a different story when they had talked to her all those years before or why she hadn't said something sooner, she said that her father had threatened to kill her if she told anyone what really happened. But again, this was the reporting of an eight-year-old who was recalling memories from three years prior. Could it be considered reliable? This bombshell led to another interview with Judith after she moved back to Oregon with her daughters. She backed up Karen's story. Even though she hadn't witnessed what happened that morning, she had witnessed and been a victim of Larry's abuse firsthand. He was verbally abusive to Judith and physically abusive towards Tommy, Karen, and their new daughter, Lisa. On April 14, 1994, three years after Tommy disappeared, 33-year-old Larry Gibson was arrested at his Montana home. He was indicted and charged with murder and murder by abuse. After bringing him in, detectives played an audio recording of Karen's admission as to what she saw that March morning. Neither Larry nor his lawyer were moved by the audio. They felt that admission, what Karen claimed to have witnessed, was all the police had on Larry. Going to trial, both Karen and Judith took the stand. Karen again told the story of watching her father beat Tommy. It was argued that Larry had been abusive through the years to his entire family. The state claimed that after shooting the cat, Larry gave the order to Tommy to stay away, but his two-year-old curiosity got the best of him. When Tommy approached the cat, that was when Larry struck him. There are reports of either Karen sharing more details or the police having to make the assumption based on evidence, but it was claimed that after the beating, Larry then took Tommy around some bushes and shot him before putting his body in a trash bag and placing him in his patrol car's trunk. I couldn't find in court records or newspapers if the shooting was confirmed by Karen as it did contradict her story of seeing Tommy in the car waving. But again, she was only four at the time of the traumatic event of watching her father kill her brother. You do think there would be evidence of that, though, with blood, the blood. Like, it didn't yeah, like get when on they his clothes, it there. didn't get on the ground, it didn't get on the bushes. Like, that seems, to me, it seems more likely he would have taken him elsewhere. And I, the accident one sounded more reasonable mm -hmm. but like he sounds like a pretty bad guy so maybe he beat him and then took him out to the woods somewhere yeah and it could have been too like if he was far enough that he could shoot a cat because i feel like if you get too close obviously it's gonna like take yeah. off so if he's far enough to shoot the cat and then it goes through and it shoots tommy one i i do get a little hesitant because it's like well wouldn't that have only struck like his legs unless he was laying next to the cat you know the Depends cat's so far angle, down yeah yeah and but then, i still think blood would be found but like, that's hard to if that's up. where the cat was he could have said oh that's where i shot the cat you know i feel like they would have tested that but it is a small town i and don't know we're but, talking early 90s and what the heck is his motive like it makes sense okay tommy came to mess with the cat and then he beat him but like how do you jump from that to like yeah. shooting him yeah 
This is a really horrible story. You're welcome. (laughs) It was believed that it took Karen being away from her father and talking to the police for her to feel safe enough to tell the true story. The defense felt that she was simply a young girl who was not necessarily lying, but maybe struggling to remember the real story in addition to being influenced by her mother's stories. Judith testified that on March 18th, she had heard a shot being fired close to their home. She was confused why she was hearing that as she thought Larry had already left for his jog. By the time she went outside to see what was going on, Larry had left for his jog and she started to look for Tommy. When Larry returned, she told him that she couldn't find Tommy. She was also pissed that he had been doing target practice or whatever he had been doing while the kids were out in the yard. He argued back that he had only shot a cat and that he felt comfortable doing so as he was sure there was a good backstop behind it. First of all, only shot a cat? Like, what kind of backwoods I, situation is that's this? That's some real small town stuff. Second like, of all, a cat? I didn't realize she was home. I thought her and the sister were out. But so you're saying when the dad said wait for the sister, they were inside? Yeah, so sister's okay. grabbing her shoes and coming out to play. Got and mom's it. inside, that makes presumably it a, watching TV. A little bit better that a two-year-old's outside in the yard by himself. But. Yeah, still unmonitored, but you know. Yeah. We're, we're in cat shooting country. You know, good God. It was only a tabby cat. Like, who does that? The defense countered, saying that when Tommy was being taken or whatever was happening, Judith was busy watching a movie on TV. She argued that while the TV had been on, she was busy searching for Tommy. And when she couldn't find him, she was pacing through the living room until Larry returned. She then pounced on him right away to ask where Tommy was. And is that like a diversion tactic? Like, it's her fault. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Or she like, wasn't watching him. Yeah, he was taken or I guess to say that she had no way of saying what could have happened because oh, she was because she was watching TV or something. I don't know. Not this guy, I swear. <laughs> Judith also testified to the abuse she had witnessed with her youngest daughter, Lisa. In this testimony, it sounds like Larry and Judith may have had another child after they moved to Montana, but I can't find any record or report of it. Given what Judith testified, we can assume Christina is their third daughter, uh, their fourth child. Asked about the abuse she had witnessed, Judith said, When I came back from the hospital after having Christina, I observed red marks on Lisa's leg just beneath her buttocks. And when I asked Larry about them, he said that they were rug burns. And I didn't think that rug burns could be caused there. And then I witnessed him hit Lisa when she got in his way hard enough to knock her down. And it also caused red marks on her legs. Regarding the red marks she saw on Lisa's legs after that incident, she was asked to compare them to the first time she had seen them. She said they were in the same area. Asked how often she saw red marks and or bruising on her children at the hand of her husband Larry, she said numerous times. And that, quote, he was always hitting them hard enough to leave marks. What a prick. It was the state's duty to prove that Larry had previously engaged in a pattern or practice of assault of the victim or another child in order to prove murder by abuse. To do so, Judith had to share other instances of Larry's abuse. For example, she shared that just a few days before Tommy was gone, she heard a clatter coming from the kitchen. Going in to see what had occurred, she found Tommy laying on the floor next to his knocked-over high chair. His face was hot and red with a swollen handprint across it. His hands were over his face as he cried. Judith told Larry not to hit Tommy so hard. Larry said it hadn't been too hard. There had been other instances just a few days before the 18th. Larry would push Tommy if he was bothering him. This would happen several times a day. 
These pushes left Tommy with bruises and welts on his back and thighs. This would happen most often when Larry was watching TV and Tommy got in his way. His physical abuse wasn't as frequent towards the daughter, Karen, but it still happened. A friend of Judith's testified she had seen such behavior, again, as Larry was trying to watch TV. This time, Karen was in his way, so he knocked her to the ground. The hit left a red mark on her cheek, and she landed on her shoulder and face. Larry's defensive team argued that these moments were not consistent abuse or accidental, but he was just being a reasonable disciplinarian. No, that's not reasonable. If you are hitting my kids, it's going to be more than cat killing country. I'll tell you that. (laughs) And also, it's not discipline if a kid is like walking in front of the television. No. Like, that's not how that works. And sure, he may have injured his baby Lisa, but that was in 1993. How does that show how he was treating his children way back in 1991? Basically saying in two years, his behavior changed that Yeah, much. no, that we're not all not so born much. yesterday, sir. <laughs> it is hard, though, because unless you have like a doctor documenting yeah. this, it's all, you know, he said or she photos said. and diaries. Yeah, something. Yeah. But the witness helps. Well, it also does help that the defensive team is like he was a disciplinarian because that for me is like, oh, OK, he was doing this stuff. Yeah. Like he's not denying it. He's changing the he doesn't label. think it's a big deal exactly the state was not lacking in the witness department when it came to larry's abuse several people were brought to the stand to report instances like pushing and hitting another said that while they were in church larry hit one of his children so hard there was an echo ricocheting off the walls don't worry none of those church members stepped in and larry again argued that he was simply disciplining his own child more damning information came out at trial. Judy shared she realized Larry had taken his 45 with him on his jog, something she had never known him to do before. There were witnesses who reported they had heard Larry threaten Karen and Judith's lives when Judith was leaving him in Montana. Larry's own mother took the stand and said that she had overheard Larry on the phone with his half-sister Debbie on the night Tommy went missing. She heard Larry say, Deb, I killed Tommy, and Judith is never going to forgive me for it. What the hell? Why would you not say that right away? (sighs) As the mom, you mean, like to call it in? Yeah, that's your grandchild. (sighs) But it's also your child. I don't give a (sighs) shit. I'll write you off that fast. Like, that is some bullshit. To testify directly as to what had been said, Deb said, quote, I was called to the phone and I answered and Larry was very upset. Very. His sentences were very rushed. He said, I'm in trouble. I killed Tommy. Not, I think I killed Tommy, or I could have, but I killed Tommy and I might need some bail money. And I said, what the hell do you mean you killed Tommy? And he said a detective Benz had been there that day. And Larry told me that it was suspected that he might have accidentally shot Tommy when he was shooting at a wild cat. And I said, when's the funeral? And he said, there's no funeral. I said, what do you mean? If you killed him, we have got to have a funeral. He said, we don't have a body. I said, now, wait a minute. You shot Tommy. You don't have a body. He said, right. And I said, you shot Tommy, but there's no body. Nobody found a dead body. He said, right. After all of the testimony and allegations of abuse from 80 witnesses, it seemed the only reasonable explanation for what happened to Tommy was that Larry either accidentally shot him while shooting the cat or he beat him and then shot him 
or the beating was sufficient enough to incapacitate him before being put in a bag, placed in the car trunk, and driven off. That's hard because that's very different charges. Those are all very different, I agree. Larry then went for his jog and returned home, playing dumb for years on end, never revealing where he had hidden his son. And that should be an additional charge Uh, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that for me is the same as like being on the run all those years. Mm -hmm. Everyone else has had to suffer. In May 1995, Larry was found guilty, not of murder or murder by abuse, but of second degree manslaughter. Bullshit. Without a body or the exact story of what happened, the jury could not convict beyond a reasonable doubt, which would have led to the higher charge. The lesser charge came with a lesser sentence, of course, as usual. Hold on to your butts. Oh, boy. Larry had been offered bail, but he had stayed in jail for about a year. That time was reduced from his sentence for time served, so the 34 to 36 months he was initially sentenced to was reduced to 23 months. He was going to serve about as much time as he had given Tommy to live. He was released from prison in September of 1996. That's so sad. So, I have actually been speaking with Larry over the internet. Um, we've been trying to have a phone conversation. I think we're <laughs> into months at this point. Uh, we do talk every couple of days. I'm always bugging him. Uh, he's still living in Montana where he's a caregiver. And as we spoke, he said he was still wanting to search for his son and help others in similar situations. And I've made my intentions clear that I, you know, I've said straight out that I would like to unburden him from the secret he's been carrying for all these years. And instead, he shared this statement. So the most burning question is, what happened to Tommy? No one seems to care about that question but myself. The police threw that question out the window within a couple of months and focused all of their energy on making a case against me. Sergeant Benz of the Oregon State Police told me on Tommy's birthday that that was exactly what they had planned. Facing the questions of what might really have happened proved to be too much for Judy and she bought into the OSP effort. I'm not sure when she gave in and went their way, but she was all in by trial time. The kids don't really know. They either have to go along with the police, the courts, the conviction, and their mother and believe that I killed my son, or they have to accept my statement, unsupported by any record, that I did not. But recently, a lot of attention has been drawn to the human trafficking issues. Lots of pictures. U.S. Marshals rescuing 39 kids here, 27 kids there, Operation Underground Railroad and the successes and failures they have had. It goes on and on with pictures. Lord, the pictures. Kids who have been sexually abused, crippled so they can be more effective beggars, living lives of slavery, sexual and otherwise. I've mostly been able to blank such thoughts from my mind over these years, most of the time. But with all of the information about it being thrown in front of me every day here lately, it's been harder to ignore. I always told myself that either someone took him who wanted a little boy or he was accidentally killed by someone and the body was hidden. I have suspected, I'm sorry, God, that maybe Judy accidentally killed him and then got away with it somehow. The drug dealer who might have hit him with a car is also a big question that has never been answered. My most prevalent theory has always been the truck that Jeanette and Karen maybe saw in the driveway. I always thought maybe they took him in a crime of opportunity. Then I tell myself it was because there was a woman in the pickup who wanted a cute little boy, and then they raised him nicely. Today, with the increased publicity of child trafficking, the realities of why someone might have kidnapped him are hammered into me. Bottom line, what makes me jerk awake in the dark hours of the morning? No matter what happened, if the drug dealer hit him with the car, if the people in the pickup took him and adopted him out to a super-rich family and he was raised in a life of luxury— 
If they instead sold him on the child trafficking market and he wound up locked away in a room abused by a series of pedophiles, whatever happened, I failed. I was gone. My morning jog and exercise program was more important, and when my son needed me the most, I was gone. There's no getting away from the fact that the man he counted on the most had left him to his fate, and I'll never be able to reconcile that. Tommy disappeared. OSP focused on me as their only suspect. DCSO first places me on restricted duty, then suspends me outright. Later, I get my badge back, but I would have to work a day shift in Roseburg where the sergeants basically were looking for things they could document as bad things so they could eventually fire me. The union rep agreed and negotiated a separation agreement for me so they could be rid of me and I could just go home. Ranch hand, shop co-clerk, insurance salesman. In America and most of the Western world, we are identified and judged by what we do for a living. Marriage rocketing down the road to an ending with two new little girls in the mix three daughters and a wife depending on me, and no real money coming in. A word here about Judy, my wife. She initially stood by me and supported me, at least to my face. I learned later that she had actually tried to argue for me with OSP, but they finally wore her down. What enormous stress she was under as well. I'm forever tortured by the fact that I was gone when Tommy needed me, but Judy has to face the fact that she was there when he needed us. When I was gone, she was in charge. Whether Tommy was kidnapped, killed by a car, eaten by a bear, or hauled away by a Bigfoot or UFO, Judy was there. What happened to our son, Judy? Why don't you know? These thoughts are in my head every day, but I didn't voice those questions to her. I didn't want to hurt her more than she already was. But one day, during a particularly vicious argument, I voiced them. I let her know that I blamed her for at least not knowing. That ended it. She left me within a week, and I guess I kind of understand. That also finally turned her to the dark side, and she started going along with pretty much whatever OSP wanted from her. Didn't take long for the indictments after that. Murder. That's what they charged me with. The sheriff in Townsend, Montana, a guy I had known for years who was a member of the church and, if not a friend, a family acquaintance, arrested me on a warrant from Oregon. Three OSP detectives came to Townsend and transported me by vehicle, not plane or something fast, back to my own jail in Douglas County, a place where I had taken many prisoners of my own over a three-year span. I was learning the other side now. During the trip, they made it as humiliating and difficult as possible. They talked about my case, laughed at me, and tried to make themselves my buddies while I was handcuffed to belly chains in the back seat, overnight in the jail in Pendleton, Oregon, then on to Roseburg and the Douglas County Jail. My attorneys met with me right after I got there. Although they were supportive, there wasn't much they had to say that was good. At some point, not that night, my primary attorney, Alan, told me that despite what the books say, once the prosecution has an indictment, the prosecution is rounding third and headed home. That although in theory I was innocent until proven guilty, the reality was that I would be working to prove them wrong or they would find me guilty of something. In his opinion, they had charged me with murder in the hopes of getting a lesser included offense of some kind. He suggested we deal. I told him that I had done nothing wrong and wouldn't say I had for any reason. Murder or not on my horizon, I wasn't going to plead to anything I hadn't done. I still feel that way, even now. When I went to court, I was dressed in a suit and tie and I appeared as a citizen, but under my slacks was a knee brace so that I couldn't run away. When I changed from my jail pajamas to my suit before court appearances, I was strip searched. When I came back from court and changed back to my jail clothes, I was again strip-searched. All this because I was poor. 
If I'd had the money, I'd have made my appearances myself and then walked away from the court until next time. Money talks and bullshit plays hours of pinochle with the crazies. Add to this that I wasn't a criminal trying to beat the rap. I was one of the victims of a crime, not only innocent for the charge, but a victim of the crime with which I was charged. There's a fun one to think of at four in the morning. And without any money, my legal representation was the public defender. Maybe he did his best. Maybe he was part of the cover-up. Maybe he was influenced by his wife, who was a lawyer in the prosecutor's office. Or maybe he just wasn't very good at his job. Whatever. Here are some more of those I-might-as-well-get-up thoughts. How could the jury have convicted me of anything? There was never even a coherent theory about what might have happened. Just a few theories. Maybe I was abusive all the time and finally hit Tommy too hard, then put him in the trunk of my patrol car and took the body where hundreds of searchers, police dogs, cadaver dogs, divers, psychics, and anyone else in free Oregon could never find him. Maybe I accidentally shot Tommy when I shot a feral cat near the yard. Of course, we had the premier pathologist for the Northwest testify that neither of those theories could work without some evidence. Blood, trace evidence in the cars, witnesses, something. But there was no evidence of anything. It was as if Tommy just never existed. The two things that stuck in my mind were, first, the pickup that may have been in our yard. I had been investigating burglaries of homes, much like my own, off the roadways, screened in by trees and often vacant during the day. We had been working at least three of these for quite a while, and I had even taken precautions at my house as we were such an obvious target for this M.O. Did those burglars come to my house expecting it to be vacant as it usually was on a Monday? Did they find my brother's car, Judy's car, and my patrol car were all there, obviously people around but Tommy alone in the yard? Did they quickly grab him and then drive away, taking him to whatever fate my absence and Judy's incompetence left him to? The other thing. During the short time that Douglas County was still investigating, a guy in the Josephine County Jail tried to make a deal on his case with info about mine. According to this informant, he and another guy were delivering drugs in the Azalea area, kind of like a drug Avon lady. The other guy was driving. They turned, mistakenly, into the dirt road which bordered my property and on which I had just left for my jog. While driving along, looking for a good turnaround point, a little boy stepped out in front of the car and they hit and killed him. They grabbed the body and took it miles away to bury it. Our detectives polygraphed the informant and he passed. They got a search warrant for the driver's house and car in Josephine County. They found drugs, of course, but they also found a six-inch blonde hair embedded in the bumper of the car. The driver was arrested on the drugs and passed a polygraph that he hadn't run into or killed any kids. There is no further information about any of this. At this point, the OSP take over the investigation. No report on if the hair matched my son or even if it was secured as evidence. No further forensic examination of the vehicle or any further information about the driver at all. A guy with whom I shared C-Tank recognized the driver's name and correctly described his car to me. Jimmy said that the driver was a snitch who had given up a lot of big people. Was I sacrificed on the altar of witness protection? Did the reality of what happened to my son become a cover-up to protect some big drug arrests? Also suspicious was the fact that this drug dealer story was never even mentioned in court. When my attorney said, defense rests, I spoke out. What? We do not? He placated me and quieted me down, but we never brought up this incident. Why? Anyway, the jury found me guilty of the lesser included offense of manslaughter too, about the same as you would get if you killed someone in a car wreck because you were DUI. 
I wound up with 29 months imprisonment, 13 of which I'd already served in county. So I spent 16 months in the Oregon State Penitentiary. So that is the statement I received from Larry. I think it's interesting. Josh found it interesting as well. I look forward to hearing from Emily her thoughts on it. I tend to, almost to a fault, always take people at face value. And I always start with 100% trust until shown otherwise, which tends to bite me in the butt because I'm often shown otherwise. And no one wants to believe that someone's capable of harming their own child. And there are a lot of issues with the case, with the evidence, with the lack of evidence, with stories changing. And then there's gut feelings. And then there's things you read that don't sit right. So I don't know. I responded to him and I expressed my honest feelings that this message had a lot of I statements, a lot of me statements, and didn't feel focused on Tommy. Could that just be this guy is narcissistic and that's how he is? Absolutely. The parts I didn't share, it was because they were so centered on Larry and playing devil's advocate to my own intuition. I can think, well, okay, let's say he had nothing to do with this, which is absolutely possible. Someone a drug dealer could have turned around and hit the child. I don't know anything about that information. I did not see it listed anywhere. So I might look into that and see what came of it. Someone could have. It happens. It happened in the runaway train video where the woman is driving down the street and she sees the young mother with the baby in the carriage and she sees the opportunity and drives away with the baby. It's not unheard of. I guess I'm just left probably as confused as everyone else. That it's hard to believe the allegations, but then you hear the evidence, and so you believe the allegations, and then the allegations are taken to court, and he's convicted on a variation of said allegations. So there must have been something there, because from what I read, I certainly couldn't convict, because there, there's a lot of reasonable doubt. So he has served the time under the accusation of killing his son, even if by accident. Is that something someone could keep with them for all of these years, potentially for the rest of their life, potentially take it to their grave where their child's buried? Is that something that a narcissistic person would enjoy the control of? Maybe. Just like with Richard Allen Davis from Polly Class's case, how he buried her on a route that made it so he could monitor her and not tell everyone this dark secret. So it's possible. No one wants it to be. But it's possible. And as soon as you think, maybe this guy, you know, a, an accused abusive police officer would have the ego to be able to do something like that and to maybe not feel that remorse or not care about sharing the outcome and then you think of Madeline McCann, the little girl who was taken out of her family's uh, hotel room while they were on vacation and having dinner just mere feet away from the room. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to believe. I'm, I'm grateful to Larry for sharing these things to get his perspective. Wouldn't that be horrible if something happened and Tommy was found to have been kidnapped by another family or by you know, human traffickers or 
you know, whatever that's whatever that third person scenario is, wouldn't that be so horrible that this man lost his career, lost his marriage, lost time in prison, a short amount compared to a lot of people that go to prison wrongfully, but still lost some of his life to that and is seen as a perpetrator if his son was taken from him and murdered by someone else. That would be horrendous. And I think it's thinking of how awful that would be, especially as a parent who's lost that child to then be victimized again. And I think it's how awful that is that keeps me, keeps pulling me back to that, that I can't put all the eggs in the basket of guilt because there is that possibility. There is reasonable doubt. And that would be really horrible. And it would also be equally horrible if all this time and all these conversations with more than just me, with every authority through the years, it'd be equally horrible that he was keeping the secret and had done this. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. And as always, someone knows something. So please share these stories of all three from all the runaway train stories, because there are still kids that are missing that were never looked for and their cases were mishandled. And those families need all the support they can get. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening to these stories and for keeping these names out there. And we're going to keep sharing other names. And eventually, maybe some families will find a little bit of peace. I'm hopeful that we can still have a conversation. One thing I'll ask him is why he claims to still want to be looking for his son or to find out information about him. But on his blog and other media accounts he has, there is not a single photo of Tommy. There is no tip line, no missing poster, not a hint of him being a father of a missing child. Now, he does have plenty of photos of him holding guns, uh, of the Twin Towers being engulfed in flames, Jesus. of him singing both as an adult and child, uh, celebrations about the Alamo and D-Day, links to his music and his extreme right-wing writings. Nothing about Tommy, though. I'm going to go ahead and be okay with you not talking to him because <laughs> I don't believe he has any. I mean, he is guilty. Yeah, he is guilty. He didn't serve enough time. And I, that kid's body is out there somewhere. And I cannot believe they haven't found it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it does seem like you have a pretty limited area because of that. Odometer you know the reading. mileage. Like, yeah. Spend every I'd spend every summer looking like yeah. this is infuriating. So at one point, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, it looks like he did have a page that he dedicated to Tommy and other missing children, but it was archived quite some time ago. So it's hard to know what a parent would say or do when they've lost a child in this manner. But it does seem like if you were going through all the work to create a web page, you would write more about the case than what Larry did, which was the following. This was accompanied with a photo of Tommy. This is my son, Tommy. The first pic is of him at age two and a half when he disappeared. The other is an age progression to age five. Tommy disappeared from our front yard in Glendale, Oregon on March 18th, 1991. Although our case was featured on both America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries, no solid clues were ever found. I believe that someone knows what happened to Tommy. I can only hope that this person comes forward soon. Tommy is now 13 years old, so this was quite some time ago. According to the computer at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, this is what he looks like now. So that was it. There were those few photos of Tommy's and links to other missing children. At the bottom of the page were links to other pages. One was called Cool Links that took you to a page with links, mostly about Montana. 
One of them was titled To My Girls, and I can only assume that he lost custody of all three of his daughters when he was convicted. And that was basically a page asking for them to contact him and to visit him and to listen to his music. The last link was simply called Montana slash Yellowstone, and it had links and info about the beauty and activities in the area. There are so many questions, and as hopeful as I was that some compassion and understanding towards Larry without judgment regarding the accusations that had been made would allow him to feel willing to open up and share more about that day, that has yet to come to fruition. We discussed double jeopardy and the statute of limitations. He even said he could scream guilty from the rooftops and he would be fine. And then instead of sharing anything, he continued to imply that something else happened that day. All I can hope is that the truth, whatever it may be, will come out before those who love Tommy are gone. If he is gone and buried or hidden somewhere, maybe whoever knows something will share that location so his family can give him a proper resting place and be granted the slightest bit of peace. Because Larry was already convicted for this crime, in essence, it is not an active case. But as we've learned, you can never say never. Is it possible someone drove by this small town and happened to come across a cute young boy who they either wanted for their own or to traffic? Absolutely. It's just that when a parent says, that's probably how that happened, when there's a testimony of a phone call admitting to the accidental death, when there is no longer an online presence looking for clues, it's just hard to believe that that was what took place. However, if it was, or if you know where Tommy ended up, dead or alive, you can call the Douglas County Sheriff's Office at 541-440-4471. I have a double jeopardy question. Yeah. Since he did not get charged with first-degree murder, if they find his body and the evidence says otherwise, oh, like if he, shot he can't or something. be charged with that? I don't believe so. Because it's not I don't... the same crime. I, I'm not sure because that's so tricky. I mean, that would be like if there's a lawyer listening that could help because I would think because it's basically the death of Tommy. But so I don't know if it would change. I mean, I guess that makes sense why you run the risk of of going to court without a body. Yeah. But oh, that is infuriating. Our, our conversations have gotten a little spicier as I as I've pushed a little harder and um. And I told them, I was like, hey, we're running out of time. This episode's coming out on Tuesday. You know, if you can talk today or tomorrow. And and then I just laid it out. I was like, hey, you're not promised tomorrow and you're getting older. This isn't something that should be taken to your grave. Like, you don't have to be connected to it. It can be uh, an anonymous tip. Like, you know, I just basically was like, hey, tell me where you buried your kid. And that was when it kind of shifted. And it was... He was clearly more frustrated and just like, I mean, yeah, I get uh, it. yeah, yeah, for sure. Especially if you haven't done something that's like what we've seen in so many of these cases where the victimization of those people kind of comes out. You know, it's like, well, I've had to hear this and this isn't right. And, and you know, I do get that for innocent people. Yeah. I There's just, no scenario you could tell me that's going to believe this man is innocent. So. Yeah, it just there are too many things. There's the phone call. There's the history of abuse. There's the gunshot going. There's just. Yeah, I'm too I'm, many. It's, it's very sad. And I'm so sad for that family. Yeah. So <sighs> so hopefully someone knows something. Larry, if you end up listening to this, if you know anything like that's just the least that can be done is to let that boy have a resting place. And let people know what happened. Unburden your soul, Larry. That's right. It's too much to carry. So 
And also that body doesn't belong to you. That's right. That body is his and he, if, well, it belongs to his family, the people that actually loved him. Yeah, that's a really nice way to say that. All right, so that, those are the stories of Runaway Train 30 years later. Some good ones because people went home because of it, some really sad ones. But overall, I think it was a good thing. You know, there are cases that still aren't solved, but we probably wouldn't be bringing them up if they hadn't been in a music video, you know, if it was just one of the far too many names on a list. So keep using platforms for good stuff, everybody. And, uh, who knows? Maybe we'll have some updates soon. Some good updates. It's just easier than dealing with the pain. going to record this because you guys won't stop. Little... We're doing nothing. I heard someone... That's your guilt. <laughs> your guilt. I was born in the 1900s. And what are the first nine of your social? <laughs> One. <laughs> it's like a special number so you don't have to wait in regular. Oh, I don't get oh. special things. Two. I got one because it. Uh, I got one for Chloe for her trip. You got so... one? Number one. <laughs> yep. Sorry. Wow. That's amazing. Five, five. <laughs> that is, I'm jealous. Oh. That's chemistry. That's a good phone number. Thank you. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I, I. It's one of my favorite things I've ever had in my life. One of my, <laughs> one of my prized possessions is my phone number. All right. Well, you guys are at it, so I'll let you know when we have tickets. Cool. But I'm guessing you don't have any. Like, do you have other preferences? Like seat, seat, seats. Oh my. Seats, like, seats, no seats. Aisle. Oh my. Well, I would also take the middle if we had it. I don't I care. like I the really aisle, so we're perfect match. Oh, all my God. God. There we go. Perfect. I can hold both of your hands. We can oh, pretend yay. like we're both your wives and see what <gasps> people do. Oh, my do. God. That'd be so good. <laughs> There's no way people think I'm married to anyone. They'll be like, that bitch? No way. No way. I'll be like, can I go sit on the pilot's lap, please? Oh, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. Go for it, babe. <laughs> babe. <laughs> babe. <laughs> And then we'll also put it on the seats around us and say, sorry for all the noise. <laughs> like people do with babies. Very annoying. <laughs> Here are some snacks to make up for it. <laughs> earplugs. <laughs> yeah. Murder in the rain earplugs. All right. Uh, should I get going on yeah. mine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it, guys. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters.
and suck my balls.